0: You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. It is my sincere pleasure today to introduce Tom Siebel, who is the chairman of First Virtual Group, a diversified holding company with interests in commercial real estate, agribusiness, global investment management, and philanthropy. Tom was the founder, chairman, and chief executive officer at Siebel Systems, which merged with Oracle in January 2006. Prior to being at Siebel, Tom served as the CEO of Gain Technology and also had several leadership positions at Oracle before that. He is the author of three books. Uh, one of them is Taking Care of E-Business. Next is Cyber Rules and Virtual Selling. And I think you'll be interested to know he has three degrees from the University of Illinois in history an MBA and a PhD in engineering. So without further ado, Tom Siebel. Thank you so much. <laughs> Afternoon, everybody. Uh, are there any? I understand there's a Siebel scholar in the room, is that right? Or, this year? Morning. This year? What's your name? Lauren. Lauren. Nice to meet you. Congratulations. All right. Okay. So my name's Thomas Siebel, and I used to be in the information technology business. And so our our uh, I was one of the I'm a computer scientist from the University of Illinois. Uh, went to work for a uh, startup company called Oracle Corporation. They had about my 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 work was in relational database theory, um, and the worldwide market for relational database systems at that time was like you know zero, maybe, you know, zero, and um, we, you know, I had an opportunity to interview with these guys at Oracle Corporation. They seem like bright guys. There are about 40 of them in the world, and I went to work with them, and it turned out that they were bright guys, and so that was quite an experience to work with them, and then we did another company called Gain Technology that was about the application of... um, uh, sound, motion, video, graphics to computers, which was a new idea in 1990, believe it or not. And then in 1992, uh, I got together. 1993, I got together with a number of people, and my partner in that was, was is here today, Pat House, and I uh, founded a company, and that was about the application of information technology and communication technology to the the problem of establishing and maintaining, uh, basically to the uh, processes of sales marketing and customer service. And that turned out to be a pretty good idea, and that was an enterprise application software company who grew that from 1995. Our revenues were $50,000. In 2000, I think they were about $2 billion. So that was the fastest growing software company in history, uh, even today. And then that merged with Oracle in 2006, and it's still a good company. Now, I want to talk today about, so in my current life, I'm no longer involved in information technology. I spent a lot of time there. And we have an organization here in Palo Alto called First Virtual Group. It's a holding company, diversified holding company. And we kind of have a number of arms. We have an investment arm. We have an agribusiness arm. We ship beef to market. Uh, We have a real estate arm. And then we do some interesting philanthropic things that we could talk about sometime one of which is the Siebel Scholars, which is the, which is very exciting. Another, you can take a look at it on the web sometimes, it's called the Meth Project. It's a large-scale exercise in prevention related to methamphetamine, uh, www.methproject.org. Check it out. It's been a fascinating experience. And uh, Nita Zupas, who I think is here. Nita, are you here? Uh, has been really driving that. I want to talk today The the topic of my talk today is IT to ET. And it's about, think about that as you know information technology to energy technology. And I want to talk about kind of the nature of opportunity and how I think the nature of opportunity is changing. Um, and so <clears throat> I want to look at you know, the information technology era that we have been living through, and kind of what I thought, what I, my thoughts on what drove that and what's happening now, and, and talk about where I think the opportunity may be in the next couple of decades. Now, if we look at the big picture, From 1980 to 2000, 1980 seems like ancient history to some of you guys. It was not that long ago, okay. But you know, we look at the overall environment going on in the United States. Certainly, we had enormously friendly uh, government policies related to uh, to how we dealt with risk. Risk was a business problem, not an anathema, okay. Uh, we're dealing with, uh, with uh, <coughs> uh, uh, encouraging innovation, entrepreneurism, broad concepts like broad-based employee ownership. Uh, and we had a, I mean, it was a very, very uh, favorable kind of regulatory government environment towards business. We had a very efficient capital market system that resulted in an incredibly fluid flow of capital to innovation. Uh, We had a global environment that was characterized by cheap and abundant, virtually seemingly infinitely abundant energy. And all of this took place in the context of an information revolution that was quite phenomenal. And that information revolution, so so that drove a market, that information revolution kind of drove a market from 1980 to 2000 that grew at a 17% compound annual growth rate. Okay? You will not find a lot of, you know, go do a Wikipedia on that, okay? and you will not find a lot of markets that grew that fast that long. So it grew from virtually nothing to you know, over a trillion dollars in that period of time. A market growing at a 17% compound annual growth rate, I mean, all you had to do was show up and not goof it up. Okay, I mean, all ships were rising. I mean, it was crazy. Okay, and it was like 1999, you just can't imagine what it was like. It was, it was something. And now, what drove it? Now, I would argue that this was driven by the transistor. Okay, and it was driven by, you know, the, and then miniaturization technology that was probably driven by the space race okay, and Intel and Fairchild, okay, and so we all know about Moore's Law, and this was the fundamental technology that I think drove this information uh, age, which was a fundamental restructuring of the global economy. Okay, we know about it. So if we look at kind of the history of economics, we went from, you know, kind of agrarian societies and pre-industrial societies, and then we had the industrial revolution. And each of these stages of, of, you know, went from you know hunter-gatherers to agrarian to pre you know, different forms of capital became the scarcest resource, the most valuable resource. So if we look at a at a um, pre-industrial society, you know, the primary, the the scarcest resources might have been extractive in nature or agrarian in nature. In an industrial society, the scarcest resources were various forms of capital and equipment. And then there was a guy named Daniel Bell, a sociologist from Harvard, who uh, theorized in 1980 that we were going to enter an era where uh, information technology where the speed and accuracy of information became the scarcest resource. It was a crazy idea in 1980, but he was right. Okay, and so now we entered this area we call the post-industrial society. You know, after a while, you know, after we got through kind of military and space applications, people found some, you know, some kind of useful things to do with this stuff. Okay, and, and then we used, you know, changed the way that we communicate, it changed the way that we entertain ourselves, and it definitely changed business processes. Now this drove that, so this in turn drove, uh, you know, a series of technologies, you know, from the development, you know, first of the computer in kind of a World War II almost time frame, and then you had Tom, you know, Tom Watson, at, at IBM, and you know, we had the, these computers. He theorized, as you will recall, he, he speculated that the worldwide market for computers would be about 10. Okay, and then, you know, we found more useful applications for these things, you know, in you know, mainframe applications in business and, and defense and industrial applications, and then there was the, the, the mini-computer, and then the computer network, which kind of really came out of I would say first digital equipment, and then three um, um, uh, com was a big mover in there. What was his name? Bob. He's uh, a na- Bob. Sorry. Cross. No, there's another Bob too. Madcap. Madcap. Bob Madcap. He's a neighbor of mine in Woodside who got a. I think he got the and kind of invented this thing called the Ethernet, which turned out to be pretty useful. And uh, and uh, you know, so then you had the advent, you know of the mini computer, the personal computer. The relational database system, uh, um, uh, enterprise application software, uh, the you know, and then the internet, where we are today, and these were every one of these were basically total replacement markets. Okay, these were not incremental advantages on the last generation. So when you were involved in you know in any one of these kind of revolutions and you're calling on a customer, I mean, it, was, it wasn't a question if they were going to buy it. They might not think they were going to buy it. Okay, but you knew they were going to buy it. It was just a question whether it was this year or two years from now. And they were going to buy it or they were going to go out of business. They were going to be non-competitive. So these were entire replacement markets, and that in, true, that in turn drove a market that grew at 17% compound annual growth rate for two decades. It was a great business. Okay, and the result of that, you know, billions of dollars of value was, were created, you know, for investors. And, you know, some of the great companies in history were created. You know, Hewlett Packard, uh, Intel, um, uh, Cisco, um, you know, some, some great companies came into existence. And for those of us that had the opportunity to participate in that process, I can tell you it was the professional experience of a lifetime. There was this incredible influx of capital and talent and innovation, and it was wild. Okay, now, about 1920, excuse me, about the year 2000, this thing hit the skids. Okay, it's been growing at about a 3% compound annual growth rate since then, about the rate of growth in the economy. It's a, that's a pretty significant change. Okay? And I would suggest to you, that way that uh, there is still a lot to do, but I would suggest to you that much of the promise of the post-industrial society has been realized. Okay? We, in fact, have changed the way people communicate, the way that they do business, the way that they entertain themselves, the way that they, the way that business processes are conducted, have been indelibly changed. We have achieved enormous increases in productivity across all of these areas. But it's slowed. Let's look at the investment information, the venture investment rate in information technology, which grew very, very rapidly going into the year 2000, and has declined by an average of 1% per year since then. Okay. Now, I've looked at a lot of these business plans that my colleagues from these companies, my friends, the people I went to graduate school with, uh, um, the people I worked at these companies, other companies with, have been working on, and I would suggest to you that most of what's going on today is not very exciting. OK? I have yet to see something that suggests a replace, in, in information technology, it is not exciting. Most of these things are bells and whistles and features on these previous generations of technology, OK? And that, you know, that might be fun, and it might be entertaining, but that is not the stuff of which great companies are made. And that is not the stuff. These sorts of growth rates are not the, the, uh, the raw material from which you know, great opportunities arise, in my opinion. I think we've done it. I think this is a mature industry. It was a great accomplishment. I believe this industry will grow at about the rate of growth of the economy, (laughs) which for the next few years is not going to be very fast. Okay, now let's look at the big picture in the next 20 years. 2010, what's going on now? 2010 to 230. What, 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 are, what are we looking at next? Okay, first of all, breath a breathtaking rate of increase in government regulation. Okay, free markets are bad, government regulation is good. Okay, this pendulum is heavy, it's big, and it has just started to swing, and it's going to swing for a decade. OK, the, ever, the problem for every major social and economic problem we have today is that there wasn't enough regulation. OK, and so we're going to fix that. OK, and Barney Frank is going to run the banking system. It's going to be great. <laughs> OK, OK, <clears throat> and these guys, and, 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 and the auto czar is going to determine you know what color, what model, what the upholstery, what the propulsion engine is, in in every vehicle, they're they're going to review the plan before it goes to the factory floor. They're going to approve. We're going to have a very very in the United States an unbelievable rise in organized labor. Okay, um, is this is going to I believe uh, it. Um, put a substantial tax on doing business. It's going to make it harder. Risk is not something, uh, risk is something that you're going to be, have to uh, avoid at all costs. Uh, it's going to be, um, to engage in risk, will be, I think, probably in many cases, you know, unlawful. So that's, that's, a, that's a dynamic. Second dynamic, the next 20 years, almost unbelievable population growth. I'm going to talk about that. That population is aging. Then you have you know, some what's going on there. You have, you have the, the health implications of that, the food implications of that, the water, water implications of that, and then some pretty significant energy implications. So let's look at, remember that curve that we had with the transistor showing Moore's law, and I think that's what really drove opportunity from in the last two decades? I think this is the curve that drives opportunity in the next two decades. This is the fundamental thing that is going to make stuff happen. Okay, now, if we look at the growth in human population in, say, the first 100,000 years of Homo sapiens on the planet, okay, it took to 1750 to get to a billion. Okay? Today we have six and a half. Okay, it's going to nine. Okay, this is not something that we can fix with, like, population control or, I mean, this is absolutely a done deal, okay? I mean, this this is pretty well, you know, absent global pandemic, nuclear holocaust, you can pretty much take this to the bank. Um, And, you know, it's going to present some interesting problems, and it's going to present some pretty interesting opportunities. And I would suggest to you that the opportunities that face us going forward are going to be related to this fact, and so I think the market opportunities that are going to give us the opportunity, give you the opportunity, because I'm too old for this, okay—to change the world. You know, like some people had the opportunity to change the world last time. Are going to be really related. They're going to be very—it's going to be very fundamental. Okay, it's not about plastics. It's not if you remember the graduate. Okay, it's not about you know. It's not about. Information technology, it's not going to be about computers. It's more fundamental than that. It's going to be about food. It's going to be about water. It's going to be about health care, and it's going to be about energy. Okay, well, we have a, you know, when you, when, you, when you make, when you do your slide presentation in the car out in front of the skilling auditorium, that's why you get typos in the headline. Okay, so I don't recommend that technique. <laughs> <laughs> I'd recommend when you give this presentation do a little bit more preparation than that, please. Uh, let's look at aging of the population. Now, a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of uh, people and a lot of companies have done a pretty, you know, it has served them well to look at demographics. Huh? You know, like the baby boom I and mean, watch that bubble kind of work through the continuum. Okay, well, well, well let's. How about this for a demographic? There are 37 million people. We have this aging population around the world. Look at this, some small numbers, like the U.S. Well, what's the population of the U.S.? About 300 million people, right? 37 million people over 65 years of age. Pretty soon, <coughs> in 30 years, that goes to 65, okay? In two thousand fifty, it goes to 80. That, that is a big number, folks. Very interesting implications for healthcare. Very interesting implications for, you know, for for second homes, for oceanfront property, for. Take a look at China. Who's been to China? Some people. Who's from China? That's it. Only four. Really? Who's from China? Raise your hands. I'm surprised. Uh, who's been to China? Now, yeah, I'm telling you what I would do. Okay. When I finished graduate school, I came to Silicon Valley. It took me a little while to get here, but but I, you know, this is where I got it. I came to Silicon Valley, and that's where the action was. And, you know, kind of all you had to do was show up, not be asleep, do your job, and you can make a significant contribution. If I were graduating today, I would get on a boat, and I would get off in Shanghai. Okay? There's just no question that's where I would be. I mean, it is just crazy over there. Uh, there's a lot going on. These people are. I don't know. How many people have not been to China? You've got to go. I mean, it is just unbelievable, the energy and the intellect and um, the education level and the work ethic. I mean, I went over there with some guy with some very close friends of Pat and mine who founded Siebel Systems with a guy named Bill Edwards who ran engineering, a guy named Dave Schmeyer, who ran products, and a guy named Ed Abbo, who then later ran engineering. Ed is the, runs all uh, applications at Oracle Corporation. today. These are very smart guys. I mean, Ed is an is a aerospace uh, engineer from Princeton and, and MIT. Uh, David is a computer scientist, a serious computer scientist out of Carnegie Mellon, and, then went to HBS. I mean, these are very, very smart guys. After five days in China, we're sitting up having a beer on the top floor of the Four Seasons Hotel in Shanghai. And, when, and these guys have slayed dragons their entire career, okay? I mean, they have taken on some of these big, unbeatable juggernaut companies and crushed them, okay, like SAP and Oracle. I mean, those are big companies. And, I mean, they don't back down to anything. And these guys are looking out, we're looking out the window in the bar in the 4 Seasons hotel in Shanghai, and this one person is shaking his head, he said, our kids are never going to be able to compete with us. I'm telling you. I, I sat next to Gu Bing Lin, who's the president of uh, Tsinghua University. Tsinghua is the top technical university in, in China, as you know, kind of the MIT. And Stanford, you know, is a pretty competitive place. How many people? Wh- wh- how many people get it, uh, freshman engineers are there at Stanford? Tom, roughly, thousand? Four hundred. Four hundred. Freshman class at Stanford is probably like five thousand total. Sixteen hundred. Right, uh, and probably they get fifteen or twenty thousand applications for that order of magnitude. Okay, maybe 25,000. Let's err let's let's by a factory of two and say it's 30,000, but it's 15 or 20, which is pretty competitive, right? At Tsinghua, they have a, a freshman class of 3,000. <clears> How many applicants do you think they get? How's 8 million sound? <laughs> Holy moly. I'm telling you. And there were these people who worked nine days a week, 24 hours a day. Sorry for the digression. I'm talking about population, I'm talking about aging. There's a lot of activity over there. Um, China's got a population of 100 million people over 65 years of age. There are some very, very significant problems over there associated. I mean, I don't think, I mean, I might need security to get out of here, but I don't think there is a health care system, okay? And, okay? and, you know, there, you know there's some there's very interesting issues associated with, with, you know, environmental issues that are, that are tragic. 100 million people go uh, over <clears throat> 65 years of age going to a population larger than the United States today, over 65, with no health care system, okay? Does that look like a problem? But U.S. healthcare system, 2.4 trillion dollars. I think it's about uh, 15, 18 percent of the GDP, growing at the most rapid rate, okay, of any sector of the GDP, going to you know four trillion, very, very quickly. Very rapidly growing market opportunity. 85 percent of the healthcare dollar, little known fact, is spent in the United States in the last year of life. Think about that. There's going to be some troubling issues there. Big, big opportunities in healthcare. That is a rapidly growing market. Let's look at energy. So here, here's this one, you know, got a logarithmic <clears throat> curve showing population growth. On top of that, let's look at per capita energy consumption. This comes out of a book by the name of. Uh, the fundamentals of renewable energy by a guy named Aldo De Rosa, who is a professor here in engineering. Has anybody taken his class? I want to take his class. It's really I about mean, about I want to take that class. He's a very very interesting guy. But this is per capita energy consumption going from kind of agrarian societies to pre-industrial societies to industrial societies, You know, from burning burning dung on a fire. You know, moving through to the industrial area today, this dot up here is the era of the Nintendo and the iPod. And that's per capita. So you kind of put these two curves on top of each other, and uh, that's pretty rapid growth, huh? And so you look at worldwide energy uses, it goes from about 400 quadrillion-quad, quadrillion BTUs of energy to about doubling. And then there are some interesting um, uh, environmental issues associated with this also that we're going to have to deal with. And uh, you kind of look at the math of this, 173,000 terawatts of energy uh, hit the Earth every day. It's solar energy. It's virtually the only source of energy on the planet, Okay, is the sun. Okay, and the great, okay, and then there's something called, if I have this right, the albedo of the Earth, okay, which basically, and, and, this, and this, the, the, this, this energy is translated, you know, into fossil fuels and tides and wind and, you know, all that kind of, you know, things that, we, that, we, that manifest themselves on the Earth. Okay, and then the albedo of the Earth is basically this stuff dissipates back into the, Atmosphere, and most importantly, beyond the atmosphere every day to maintain a pretty constant temperature over a long period of time. Okay, now the problem is when you throw a bunch of carbon out there, it forms a kind of a down jacket on the, on the edge of the atmosphere. And that down, that layer of insulation prevents this heat from dissipating. And that's what this climate discussion is all about. And it's getting a little hard to you know, to dispute, I think. And it creates, you know, so as the kind of polar caps begin to melt and the ocean begins to boil, you know, it's going to present some opportunities for innovation. Um, the, uh, the, uh, so the, the source of energy today, it's basically where do we get our energy on the planet? I mean, outside of France and, and, and Japan, that has, a, that, that has an interesting percentage of nuclear power. Okay, it's all – and, and by the way, even this nuclear power is not a renewable source. This, the, the uranium, I mean, is finite, and it gets tapped out pretty fast. Um, but, you know, 85% of it is what we would call, you know, it's hydrocarbon-based, uh, non-renewable energy. And if you look at absolutely virtually every prediction of energy usage going forward, for the next you know 50 years, it doesn't change. it's about 85 percent hydrocarbons. And when I was having lunch with uh, Professor de Rosa, he basically explained to me, and if you look at the systems that are kind of on the earth today, you know in terms of all the infrastructure associated with the delivery of energy, if we had the silver bullet today, I mean right here, uh, let's say, you know a thousand pentawatts of energy, you know, that we that would, you know, that would fuel the nation for, you know, 10 years. It would take 40 years for this thing to work its way into the marketplace in a meaningful way. So even if the problem were solved, the problem, you know, the the issues of, of delivery are very, very significant. Okay, so you have the growth in population, you have the per capita uh, energy consumption. You have the uh, you have the dependence on hydrocarbons. You have the carbon issue in the atmosphere, and then you have this thing called peak oil. Has anybody looked at peak oil? Interesting problem. It's I look it up. i do a Wikipedia. on it. It's this guy. I think uh, uh, Hubert King. King Hubert. Is that right? What's it? Hubert King. Uh, King, Hu- King 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 Hubert. He's he was at Royal Dutch Shell, wasn't he? Royal Dutch Shell in 1959, he came up with this theory that when they kind of predicted the, you know, the, the world's known oil reserves and concluded that once you got 50% through the, new, the world's known oil reserves, it would take 50 years to tap them out. OK? All the data suggests that we made it 50% through about 2006. Okay, and I, I mean this is not somebody's crazy theory. This is like Royal Dutch Shell. I mean, and so if you think this, think it's you know. So if you made it, I mean, if this is true, and I don't think it's crazy science. You know, in about 20 years, it's going to create some pretty interesting geopolitical problems. Okay, so what's going on in energy? Um, buildings. Buildings in the United States consume about 40 percent of our energy footprint. Our energy bill in the United States is on the order of $400 billion annually. Um, buildings account for 40% of the energy that we consume and about 60% of the particulate that goes into the atmosphere. Um, and you kind of look at this energy problem, and you know there's kind of a couple approaches to it. You know, One is this drill, drill, drill idea, which is you know, I mean, I'm not against that, but you know, the, the the data would suggest that you know it's not really going to solve anything in the long run. And then there's this concept of invent, invent, invent. And so I want to talk about two initiatives that we've embarked upon. You know, of the various issues, kind of you know we kind of got focused on population, and then we got focused on energy, and we're now involved in two initiatives. One is philanthropic in nature, and the other is a market response to some of these energy issues that I want to introduce to you uh, related to energy. And the first is this philanthropic, philanthropic effort called the Energy Free Home Foundation. Now, there is a rich history in technology of technology prizes fueling innovation. For example, as you may know, Charles Lindbergh flew from the United States to Europe to win a $25,000 prize, okay? It was called the uh, Ortigue Prize, and a lot of people had competed for it and didn't get there, and he got there, and it got $25,000, and it, it, it drove a lot of innovation. There was another person in, in the um, 18th century, the British government was running a navy, and they were going to run an empire, and the navy was important to running the empire, and uh, they needed to be able to navigate. And so they held a prize to come up with a piece of technology uh, to enable the determination of longitude. And that technology that was developed was called the, the chronograph, pretty useful piece of technology. Of course, they didn't pay the guy. They stiffed him, and he ultimately went bankrupt. But it was still, you know, it was important. And so we have assembled, we have been working with, we've had literally hundreds of scientists working uh, for the last two years, and uh, Deb Whitman has been heading up this effort. And we've been working with scientists at, we've assembled a team from Princeton University, uh, University of California, Berkeley, Lawrence Berkeley Laboratories, uh, Tsinghua University in Beijing, we've had the the, the the, the, uh, the, the, the climate team from McKinsey & Company out of Copenhagen, uh, Stanford University, and then the, the engineers at the University of Illinois in Urbana, that's where I went to school, uh, uh, were thinking about this problem with us. And what we decided to do after a lot of time and a lot of energy was launch a large-scale global challenge with $20 million in prize money, to see if we could fuel a great deal of innovation in a short period of time in the energy, and, and, and make a significant contribution to the energy dialogue on the scale of the home. And we chose the home because we think it has, you know, that there's some, you know, it's something that people can relate to. Okay, it's tractable in scale. It has some emotional content to it. And what we're doing is we're putting together a challenge to see if we can realize the energy-free home, okay? And the energy-free home that we are defining um, as basically a standard, typical US house, uh, built to U.S. economic utility standards, which are higher than the rest of the world, um, and or much of the world, um, where the the size is 2,000 square feet, three bedroom, two bath. Uh, that, where the energy footprint is zero. That is the non-renewable energy footprint is zero. So at the end of 365 days, the meter reads zero. And to the extent that you use natural gas, you have to pay that back, it can be grid connected, but to the extent that you use natural gas, you have to pay that back to the, you know, in the form of, uh, of electrical energy. So it has to meet our utility standards, economic utility standards, so you can't sit in the dark and freeze to death. And uh, so far, that's not really that hard. By the way, you could build that house. Any, any four of us could build that house with today's technology. It would cost about $1,000 a square foot, but we could get it done. The, the hard part is the cost of construction has to be no greater than the cost of conventional construction. How hard is that? It's really, really, really hard. OK. In order to do this, somebody has to invent polio vaccine. Somebody has to invent the transistor. Okay, There's net new technology that has to be invented. And so we've assembled this team to administer and adjudicate this challenge. So we have Vince Poore, the dean of engineering from Princeton. Uh, Shirley Tillman's involved uh, from Princeton. But the president, Bob Bergerneau, the chancellor of the University of California Berkeley. Jim Plummer from Princeton. Uh, uh, Joe White, the president of the University of Illinois System. Gu Bing Ling, the president of uh, Tsinghua. Uh, Gary Pincus and his team from McKinsey, Steve Chu, formerly of Lawrence Berkeley Laboratories, uh, is involved. He's on the board. Um, And these people are going to administer this global challenge. And what we're going to do, and so then the other people administering it include uh, Spence Abraham, former Secretary of Energy, uh, Jeff Bingham, senator from Arizona, Senator Mikulski from Alaska, Um, Who else? Uh, Max Baucus, chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. This is interesting here. Shankar Stastry from from, Dean of Berkeley. Larry Kramer, who runs the the law school here at Stanford. So I mean, a pretty competent group of people. Art Gensler runs Gensler, uh, the largest architect firm, I think, in the world. And what we are doing is we have two phases to this challenge. The first is an enabling technology phase, and the second is a integration phase. So in the first phase, we have, I forget how many million dollars of prizes. We haven't yet announced this. We're getting ready to announce it. But basically, five million dollars in prizes for teams of engineers from around the world to compete to develop enabling technologies. So over here, you have a reference home. I mean, the Roberts home has a set of construction documents and design documents, and it's 2,000 square feet, three bedroom, two baths, and I mean, you can see it and, you know, hear the plans, and so. And, and it is built to the, the, the top standards uh, from Department of Energy in energy, uh, designed to the top standards in energy efficiency today. So these prizes will be for the invention of net new technologies, net new systems, net new design techniques, That'll substantially reduce the energy footprint of that reference home. And then we're gonna we're gonna hand out, we're gonna recognize those in a big way, feature them on Shanghai at the expo in 2010, um, you know, very large internet presence and kind of communicate, you know, these you know net new ideas to the world. In the second phase is kind of the design build phase where we got we are going to encourage teams of uh, design engineers and architects and builders to integrate those technologies and any other technologies that might be available uh, to design a house to those specifications. 2,000 square feet, three bedroom, two bath, zero net energy, no trade-off in economic utility at the end of the 365 days that meet at rate zero. Okay, we're gonna take those designs, we're gonna take the top 10 of those Um, and simulate them, okay, based upon those that exceed the objective in simulation. We're going to plan on building ten of them, measuring them empirically in real-life situations, and then we're going to build a hundred-home energy-free community. Um, Currently, uh, it is targeted to go on the campus of the University of Illinois in Urbana. And if we are able to achieve this objective, in a 2012-2013 time frame, I would suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, the world will never be the same. So it's a very, very exciting It's, a, it's a very exciting uh, idea. Uh, this, actually, idea came out of a Siebel Scholars Conference that we had at the University of California at Berkeley in two, October of 2008. In the first quarter of 2008, we founded the Energy-Free Home Foundation, formed the university partnerships, and the partnership with McKinsey, uh, established the advisory board, Retained the you know the, the the firms briefed the political leaders Schwarzenegger Obama McCain uh, the you know this you know the people in the Senate and the Congress we've been you know spent a year drafting the rules briefing congressional staff American Institute of Architects um, now we're you know we're in the process of recruiting corporate partners and uh, getting ready to launch the plan and uh, you know we'll launch it this spring, the same day that we you know, briefed the Congress and put together a very significant uh, communication strategy around it. And so um, if you look at you know, McKinsey's assumption of the penetration of this technology into the retrofit market and the new home market, the effect of this um, in a very short period of time, like 15 years, is re- to reduce 40 million cars, from the, you know, the, the effective equivalent of taking 40 million cars off the road in the United States alone. So it's a very exciting idea. And what, what is this all about? What do we want to do with the energy free? What is this initiative all about? It's about fueling a lot of innovation from a lot of bright people all around the world to compete in a way that will change the world, fundamentally change the world, change the energy equation, influence public policy, and change the way buildings are built, buildings are operated, and the way that people live in them. A second um, uh, initiative that we've embarked upon is a market response to climate change. And it's a company that, we're in, that we've are that we now uh, actually founded called C3. C3, um, basically, we look at this, you know, Kind of a couple of vectors that are going on related to energy, related to climate, have to do with, if you look at what's going on in the European Union, you look at what's going on in this administration, I think it is highly, highly likely that we are going to have carbon reporting requirements and carbon tracking requirements. You have this thing called cap-and-trade, and and whether it's a carbon tax system or it's cap-and-trade, one of these things, I think the probability of one of these things becoming the law in the European Union in the United States in the next, you don't say cover many years is highly probable, and this will require, for example, where basically the essence of this is we will cap the carbon emissions of a, of a country or a company at a certain level, and you will just like you are required today report your you know income statement, your balance sheet, your changing cash flow, quarterly SEC, you're going to be required to submit your, your documentation of your carbon footprint, okay and it will be very expensive, okay? Those of you, anybody remember the Y2K problem? Okay, it was a big deal, it was very expensive. Okay, this is like a Y2K problem that never goes away. Okay, it's enormously expensive to calculate and report. Okay, and then if you want to build a new factory, a new facility, add a new route, build a new product, you're going to have to calculate the carbon footprint of that and mitigate that, right? So you will have to mitigate that, you will have to have either purchased those carbon credits from somebody else or mitigated them from your own use to have them available. And that's the reality of the future. So if you look at the predictions for the carbon trading market, Pat and I were just at the Chicago Climate Exchange last week, I think it's about a $3 billion market now, going to a $3 trillion market, market in 2020 as a result of these this legislation that's going into effect. Um, so we started thinking about this in the summer of 2008, and we... And uh, Pat and I assembled a team, it's kind of a unique collabor- collaboration, a very unique way to start a company. Uh, and what we did is we basically got called our friends from over the years and got them together to work and think about this problem. And so through the summer, the fall, and the winter of 2008, we assembled a team of 40 people who were quite accomplished, well, Steve Ward is the CIO of IBM and the CEO of Lenovo, Sean uh, Coin was the CIO at GE um, Power and the CIO at Toyota at Abo he used to run all applications at Siebel now he runs all applications at Oracle um, We have you know people who are you know chief architect at Siebel chief architect at Oracle, finance people, lawyers, very very talented people from, from, from a group of people from the East coast the west coast europe you you name it and They wrestled with this problem for some months and broke off into work groups to think about business plan, partner ecosystem strategy, business model, partner models. In December, having concluded their deliberations, they decided to found a company. And the company was called C3, and it's about bringing information technology to energy technology. And the idea behind C3 was to go heads down and build a very, very serious foundation of enterprise application software uh, that would enable organizations to measure, monitor, mitigate, and monetize their carbon footprint. It's a very exciting idea. And so in January of 2009, it was founded. In February of 2009, it was funded. So we sent out an email on Friday, and had twenty million dollars raised by Sunday. Um, true story. Uh, the uh, February, the 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 the, uh, and and, nobody, and that's without any discussion of what the terms were. Okay, it was just, you know, first you send your check, and then we tell you what the terms were. It was amazing. Uh, the, uh, needless to say, there's no institutional money. Um, uh, we formed the Board of Directors, consists of Shankar Sastry, the Dean of Engineering at Berkeley, uh, Pat House, Mike McCaffrey, who used to run the uh, Stanford Endowment, now he's CEO of McKinnon Company, Steve Ward from IBM, and I am involved. And so it's February, we, we, we founded it, January, we funded it in February, we constituted it in February. The founding team showed up for work last, last Monday. What day is today? Wednesday? Two days ago? And this is the every one of these people has two Super Bowl rings, okay? In, in information technology. And by the way, every one of them has also worked for a team, has played for a team with a zero for eleven season, and so they've been there. Jeff Amon was uh, uh, is a, an attorney from the University of Michigan. Uh, Peter Lim, one of the chief architects at Oracle Siebel. Kevin Nix ran products at Siebel. Jan Ritz from McKinsey and Company. Jan's right here in the front row. Uh, Eric Marti. Elizabeth McLaughlin from Siebel and other places, and then most importantly, Pat House, who is um, um, Pat and I have worked together on a lot of initiatives over 20 years. So that's the story, and the objective now is to head down, work with partners, work with companies, and in the next, you know, next year and a half, develop a very comprehensive spot product specification and bring to market a a a family of world-class products that will enable organizations to measure, monitor, mitigate, and monetize their carbon footprint. This is kind of the Moore's Law of our lives. Okay, this chart we're looking at right here. The big picture, government regulation is going to be, the government is going to be your new partner Get used to it. The population growth has gone from a billion to six and a half billion, now it's going to nine, and it's getting old. It's particularly getting old in places like Germany and China. Healthcare market's is going to go crazy. Energy is a problem. The interesting problems that I think we will solve in our lives, that many of you will solve, you know, I'm beyond this, okay, that many of you will solve in your lives, well, you will have the opportunity to change the world, to make the world a better place, to build some great organizations, and feel like you made a difference, I believe are going to be related to food, okay, they're going to be related to water, are going to be related to health care, and they're going to be related to energy. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my great, great pleasure to have the opportunity to uh, talk with you. I see we have, I have, I have nine minutes left on the clock, and I will be happy to answer um, any questions about this or anything you want to talk about. Yes, sir. What's your name? What, and what do, you, what, what do you do here? I work for Oracle. For, for, what do you do? I'm in a business development. Business development. Well, it's a great company. How long have you worked there? Three years. All right. I have a question, what hurdles did you personally face from your switch from IT to ET? Hey, Tom, can you repeat the question? The question or- is what hurdles did I face from IT to ET? Well, there's a big hurdle. I didn't know anything about it. Okay, and when I entered information technology, I mean, I was pretty conversant. I, mean, I could probably go toe-to-toe with almost anybody on relational database theory. Okay. And so I was pretty conversant. So I would say the big difference was domain expertise. And so I spent the better part of three years just, you know, reading textbooks and, you know, going to seminars and holding conferences at Northwestern. We held a conference at some of the foremost experts in the world on water for a conference at Northwestern. Some of the foremost experts in the world for a conference at, at, uh, at, um, at, at, at Energy at Berkeley. Spent time with the people from. I read everything and tried to develop some familiarity with the domain, and I would say that. uh, And so, that was the big, big difference. And I would say honestly, you know, what I know about energy technology is at the, you know, just the most pedestrian of levels. But I have taken three years to try, and so that that's the hurdle. And yes, sir. Where are you incorporated outside the U.S.? Uh, We are not incorporated outside the U.S., but this will, I mean, we are in the business of building global companies. And then I'm quite certain that Pat will be building a global company. Yes, sir, what's your name? My name's Andrew. Andrew, what do you do? I'm a freshman. All right. (laughs) What are you studying? Uh, I'm still figuring that out. Okay, (laughs) me too. What? What can I do for you? So I'm trying to figure out the different pros and cons of a carbon emissions tax versus a cap-and-trade system. And a lot of the costs you talked about of calculating um, your carbon emissions won't be there with a the carbon emissions tax. Isn't that correct? You know, I'm going to defer on that. You know, I'm going to uh, – uh, um, I don't have a sufficient expertise to opine. So rather than get into an area where I'm not an expert, I'm going to just punt on it. And I'll take your word for it. C3 would do a, do a lot more business. Either way, either way, you're going to have to measure it. Either way, you're going to have to measure it. Either way, you're going to have to mitigate it. Okay, And, and we're not going to actually be the trading floor. So the, the measurement opportunity is there and the mitigating, mitigation opportunity is there. And, and And whether there's an exchange opportunity is really... I'll leave that to the people at the Chicago Climate Exchange. Yes, sir. What's your name, please? Oh, just now. And what do you do? I'm a physics grad student. All right. So uh, some of the numbers you mentioned seem pretty interesting. For instance, you said that IT grew at uh, 17% over the last uh, 20 years. 20 years. Right. And now it's only going to 3%. I've, well, slower now. It was 3% like two years ago, right? I think it's, I think it's probably growing at this year at, like no growth. <laughs> okay. Fair but. Then you talked about healthcare, and you said that it was for, healthcare spending was projected to rise from say two point four trillion now to four odd trillion US. in the U.S. twenty years. Right. Sorry. In the in the U.S. Okay. So that's less than doubling in twenty years, and so that's about a three and a half percent growth rate or less. So does that could you comment a bit more on healthcare, given that that doesn't seem to be significantly larger than the three percent that you see it growing at right now? You know, I am again. You know, I, I think you'll find that uh, the reason that there's so much dialogue about healthcare costs is um, is not because they're not growing at a rapid rate. And uh, the okay, this was the U.S. Okay, now let's look at China. Okay, where you have 100 million people going to 300 million and. Um, and I think very low healthcare expenditures. I suspect the healthcare expenditures in India aren't that high. Okay, and they're gonna go. They're gonna go at a very rapid rate. So there's, you know, you can verify this more rapidly than I can on the internet in about 10 minutes. But there are some pretty smart people out there that think this is a rapidly growing market, and intuitively, I think it is too. Yes, sir. A comment. Uh, my name is Eitan. And Eitan, I'm what do you do? A company founder. Uh, what kind of, what, what's your company you here? Uh, Global Tech Research. We're building an intelligent platform to speed innovation. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter which area. So quick, quick question I have for you is, you know, areas just don't go away. Can you comment a little bit on the role or the opportunity in IT to be an enabling technology for these areas? Well, I think that you know, for what, we're, what we're doing, or what Pat and her team are doing at C3 is, is incidentally IT. OK? The fact that it's IT is incidental, and, and, but I think that's an area where without IT, you can't solve the problem. I think healthcare. I mean, are we going to apply, you know, uh, I mean, are we going to apply inno- information technology to the healthcare market to achieve innovation there? You know, bioinformatics, I mean, you think? And, you know, so, you know, so I think that in these areas that it will be enabling, and there will be some big opportunities. Yes, sir? Uh, my name's Eric. Eric? What do you do, Eric? I'm um, an investor. All right. Um, hmm. So my question is with regards to basically the capital markets in the current time. You said basically the government's going to come in and make it hard to take on risks without them being a partner. At the same time, how do they fund these things? You say population growth, health care, everything else. Where does the money come from when we're already massively in debt? I right? have no idea. <laughs> I mean, it's a great question. I mean the investment. What's the largest everybody, what's the largest investment bank in the world today? Anyone want to guess? I think it's Lazard Ferrer. How about Jeffries that? Huh? Jeffrey's number two. Huh? Number, two. number two. Is it is it Lazard? Am I right? I think it's Lazard Ferrer. I'm not percent Jeffrey's number two. This, this entire business has been disintermediated. disintermediated. I mean, it's unbelievable. Hi. Hi, my name is Liliana. I'm a sophomore undergrad, and my question is regarding energy technology in China, because it seems like one of the main problems with be deployment. So what is your um, thought about the ET marketing in China, and how is that different from the one you're in Europe? You know, I would have to rely on you. Um, to, you know, I suspect you are a greater expert on that particular subject than I am. Uh, but, you know, I think that this i mean if you look at the math of china and the energy math of china uh the 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 growth of the economic juggernaut in china and the carbon footprint of china something tells me that that the opportunity in china is going to be bigger than a bread box yes sir Uh, i was wondering regarding the uh, prizes of fuel innovation, do you consider uh, the X-Prize a uh, competitor, or have you thought in collaborating with them? Uh, you know, I think X-Prize is a great organization. They do some interesting things. I don't think they're a competitor. I mean, they're doing some interesting things in transportation, and they're a great organization, and they're friends of ours, but we're going to, we, we you know, I decided to do this a little bit differently than they do theirs. <coughs> yes, sir. What's your name, please? i what do you do? Right. So I'm just curious about the prize that you showed, the 20 million dollars in prizes. Um, when you have prizes, you definitely get a big bank of buck in terms of how much innovation you can fuel from those. But what about the funding of those um, of those prizes, right? So how do you actually fund the innovation that needs to happen in the early stages, especially when they're talking about? projects which are capital-intensive projects? I think it will vary. I think, first of all, I think it, it varies. I think a lot of the resource will just be tapped from universities. You know, It will be people at Tsinghua, Stanford, Berkeley, who are supposed to be doing something else that are using the resources of the university, okay? It'll be people at GE Power that's doing the same thing. Some of them will be sanctioned. Some will be, there'll be venture capitalists financing the effort for an interest in the intellectual property. So I think it'll be the full gamut of, you know, there'll be entrepreneurs in the Midwest that'll team together and build a new glazing technology or, you know, whatever, where, you know, there'll be, you know, four computer scientists here that'll come up with an operating system for a house. And they'll just use university resources to do it. So that will be, I think, they'll come from all over. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe I understand we have reached the uh, end of our presentation and we're now about to turn into a pumpkin. And uh, thank you all for the great uh, honor of being able to talk with you. You have been listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.